Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are sealed inside the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcasting chamber right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are going after a really fascinating topic and one that uh, that really meshes well with our, our sealed environment here. Yes, that's right. We're doing a little armchair traveling today, and uh, we're going to travel back to 1991, or 92 or so. But before we do that, let's talk about this concept of a utopia, a Garden of Eden, this, this thing that we aspire to. Oh, yes. I mean, this is a, an, an idea that has been with us for ages, right? That there perhaps was a, a primordial time, an untouched time where everything was was perfect, and that we could maybe recreate that through some system because it seems seems like we have all of these flaws right in 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 human culture and human society the way we do things the way we interact with the world it's it's inherently flawed we're on this doomed trajectory and there's got to be something we could do to change it some order we could put on ourselves some technology we could uh, we could aspire to something that would turn things around and save us from ourselves, and maybe, depending on what your worldview is and your and and how you view your mythic history, return us to some uh, some previous mode of living that was pristine. Uh, yeah, replete with waterfalls, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could do that. We are, of course, talking about Biosphere Two. Yes. Which, uh, how do you explain this? I think about it. As like this Burning Man fever dream. Yes. <laughs> like, let's put up an ark in the desert and create a utopia. But it's not, in fact, a fever dream. Or maybe it was. Uh, the, one of the founders of this idea's fever dream. Mm-hmm. It actually came into reality in the early 90s. And it served as this kind of mini Earth. Yeah. I mean, it was, in a sense, kind of a scientific Burning Man. Because the you can certainly make comparisons between the, the energy that uh, that started each of these uh, endeavors. And while one was uh while one was based in uh in art and expression mm-hmm. and have just having a big old party out in the, the middle of nowhere, the other is a scientific endeavor. Yeah, and uh we're talking about this miniature airtight world that sprang up in the desert. And uh we're gonna take a look at this in two episodes. Today's episode is gonna focus more on the architecture and what happened during this experiment. Um, so, and we do want to mention that there have been other biospheres built before, mainly in the 60s and 70s by mm-hmm. Russian and American scientists, but those really pale in comparison to the grandeur that is biosphere too. Yeah, the grandeur is key here because this was, I mean, it was really a realization of, of ideas that had previously mostly been the domain of uh, conjecture and even science fiction. Like I, I instantly think back to 1972's film Silent Running, where you had, uh, all of the forest on Earth had been decimated, mm-hmm. and you had, and you had all the ecosystems of the Earth sealed off in self-contained hemispheres in space, uh, looked after by Bruce Dern and some robots, and and that is a really beautiful film uh, with a strong uh, ecological message. But it was very much science fiction. But fast forward a couple of decades, and you see it actually take shape on the Earth, and it is an amazing endeavor. It is. The project was originally conceived and executed by a group of adventurers, artists, and philosophers known as the Synergists. And uh, they had the financial backing of Texas billionaire Ed Bass, an oil magnate, 
and with that financing, they were actually able to bring this this idea to life. Yes, first of all, Ed Bass is one of two really key individuals to mm-hmm. this whole project because, of course, he had the funds to make it happen. Uh, and he's it really he's one of these characters that also makes you rethink the term Texas oil billionaire. Uh, because this was a guy that, you know, that, that was and is and remains very active in, uh, environmentalist and philanthropic, mm-hmm. uh, endeavors. But the other key individual, uh, and, and the other guy that this could not have happened without is one John Allen. And we could really just devote a whole podcast if we wanted to, to just analyzing John Allen because, uh, with this guy, you have a Colorado School of Mines trained metallurgist and Harvard MBA. All right. No big deal. Uh, but 1963, he's uh, he's in a Manhattan office building, and the story goes that uh, this was following two hallucinogenic experiences with peyote. Mm-hmm. He looks out the window at this uh, this, this sprawling uh, you know metropolis, and uh, and he sees the air out there, and he realizes he can't open the window to get to that air. He has this uh, epiphany, uh, so he quits his job, heads out, and begins uh, seeking wisdom around the world. Um, by 1967, he's become a self-styled uh, esoteric teacher in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1968, he and his students uh, go to New York and they set up a theater company. From there, they go to New Mexico where they start a commune near Santa Fe. And eventually, he e- meets Ed Bass. And Ed Bass starts listening to some of his ideas. And, uh, and his ideas are really impressive. Yeah, I should also mention to you that, uh, that this group also has an oceanic research vessel and all this time, they're, they are trying in earnest to be rigorous about a scientific approach to the environment. And at this time, Alan really comes up with the basis of this idea of the biosphere. He says, quote, there is a crisis of misalignment between the biosphere and the technosphere. These seem to be out of balance, a catastrophe. Biosphere, too, instead creates a balance between biosphere and technosphere. In other words, he's going to try to use the technology and, and the, the money here of Bass to create something of an artificial utopia. There's a great deal of interest with the synergists who later redubbed themselves the Institute for uh, Ecotechnics uh, with not only understanding the environment, but essentially bottling it up in the same way that you have uh, the, the idea of a bottled terrarium. Uh, and uh, and this, of course, is is looking into the future, thinking about the long term survival of the human race, thinking about space exploration, thinking about how do we take not just a little of our environment with us? How do we not just take, uh, uh, you know, a, a portion of it that we consume and then has to be replenished? How do we take a self-sustaining portion of our world with us and and even seed other worlds with it? Yeah, this really was one of the missions of this project. And according to The New York Times in 1992, when they reported on it, the structure was billed as the first large habitat for humans that would live and breathe on its own as cut off from the Earth as a spaceship. And again, the idea was to, to have this mini atmosphere that could be portable eventually, but also to better understand Earth's biosphere or, as the biospherians called it, biosphere one. Yes. Yeah. I also want to point out that at a, at a uh, conference in Oracle in 1984, Alan announced his plan to build a prototype Mars colony on Earth before the decade was out. And he and he uh, he said that the destiny of human beings was to seed Earth's life into space, and the first stop would be a working colony on Mars. So, these are some of the the far-reaching, ambitious ideas that were uh, that were in the heads of John Allen, and ultimately in the heads of uh, those who, uh, for lack of a better word, followed him and 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 just bought into his vision. 
Now, let's talk about uh, really where the rubber meets the road here when we're talking about this building, okay? Because so far we've been talking about all these sort of like esoteric ideas of utopia and biosphere and balancing. But what do you need in order to do that? You need an incredibly huge structure. And from 1987 to 1991, this structure was built in the Sonoran Desert, about 30 miles north of Tucson. And we are talking about a 7,200,000 cubic foot sealed glass and space frame structure spread over 3.15 acres. Massive. Yeah, and I should also add that the original idea was they built this thing to last. The idea was that Mm -hmm. rotating crews would work here for a century. So one crew comes in, then the next crew comes in, and the experiment keeps going and going. Uh, You know, in all this, I keep thinking, like one of the only other minds that that comes to my mind when I I think of vision like this is Walt Disney. And, you know, we've talked about his plans for... for, uh, for Walt Disney World and uh, especially for Epcot Center mm-hmm. and how ambitious, crazy ambitious those ideas were. And those ideas had to be rolled back to meet the uh, the realities of business. And uh, with Biosphere 2, you see a bit of that, but they actually, they, they actually got more of that vision somewhat accomplished, initially accomplished. Well, and we'll talk a little bit about this more later, but there had to be an immense amount of excitement here because that's, you know, initially the plan was $30 million to build mm-hmm. this, but it took $200 million. With that kind of wallet open, yeah, you can see how a lot of people would be interested in jumping on this and contributing to it because you are, in a sense, making history with this building and with this plan. And one of the things, or one of the reasons why it was so expensive is because it had to emulate a closed system that was energetically open, much like Earth, right? So in other words, it's a materially closed system. So plants, for instance, biomass can't leave the system, but energy can, right? right. Because whether or not it's heated or if uh, it's absorbed um, in other ways, it can move around in an energetic way. And that takes a lot of engineering, a lot of know-how, and a lot of technology to pull that off. And they didn't skimp on bringing in great minds to work on this. It wasn't one of these situations where it's like a crazy guy building a pyramid out in the desert. No, they, they brought in some of the, the finest minds to help uh, construct not only the structure itself, but then ultimately the environments within it. Indeed. I mean, it really became this unprecedented research tool, a mini earth as much as you could make. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the the structure itself and the uh, creation of the environments within it. We're back. All right. Um, I, I really love the architecture of Biosphere 2. Yes, it's very beautiful. And if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently, go visit our website. I'm going to make sure that we have a gallery there of some really stunning images of this place because, uh, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful building. It's absolute retro futurist. It's got, um, you know, the geodesic structures, those domes that are inspired by Buckminster Fuller. It's got even sort of Moorish um, architecture to mm-hmm. it as well in some of the, I guess you would call it the lungs of the building. And it was designed by a company called Biospheric Design. And again, they were influenced um, by all of the sort of 60s, 70s, and 80s retro, retro future visions of what this glass behemoth could be. 
And to me, I kind of, I even think about it as this futuristic crystal palace. Yeah, it really does have that kind of look to it. I, 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 I was looking at, again, these images are, are fabulous and they, you look at them and you see this place kind of like emerging out of the desert, but just emerging out of time. It's kind of, it's, it's unreal to, to look at it. Yep, and it was built as the world's most airtight building. It was designed to leak no more than 10% of its air per year, and that is half the rate of the space shuttle. And it's sealed on the bottom by a stainless steel liner and on the top by a steel and glass frame structure. So it really does try to fit those parameters really tightly. Because, again, this was sort of, if you think about it, this was probably the thing that the entire project was hanging on, this ability for it to keep its energy seal. Right. Of course, all this glass is key because yeah. obviously we need it's again, it's thermodynamically open. So we need heat energy, energy from the sun to actually enter through the glass. Yeah. In order to compensate for changes in air volume, which would be caused by solar heating, right? The expanding atmosphere because of the heat and because of those alternating day and night temperatures, there were these large dome shaped lungs that were constructed to deal with that expansion and make sure that the exterior didn't fracture to the point that the building would lose its integrity in the case of that seal that we were talking about. And so in this uh, 7,200,000 cubic foot sealed structure, how much air do we actually have in there? How much soil do we have in there? We have about 161,000 cubic meters of atmosphere. We have about 17,000 meters cubic meters of soil and about 1,500,000 liters of fresh water, which doesn't even account for this big ocean they put in there. Oh, yes. The artificial sea of Biosphere 2 uh, containing 676,000 gallons or 2,555,894 liters. Uh, and this was designed uh, to be a, a coral reef uh, reminiscent of the uh, Caribbean. And uh, and just for future reference, uh, and you can see this in some of the images that, that we're sharing on this, uh, the, the ocean is situated between uh, the desert and the rainforest as kind of a a buffer zone, a temperature buffer. Yeah, so we've thrown all these statistics out at you, and I think you guys all have a good idea of how massive this structure was. But just imagine yourself on a cliff, okay? Like you mm-hmm. look above you, and there's this glass dome, and you're on this cliff, and you're now looking over at a 850-square-mile coral reef, a 450-square-mile mangrove marsh, a 1,900-square-mile Amazonian rainforest, a 1,300-square-mile savanna grassland, and then, oh, sure, I'll take a 1,400-square-mile fog desert. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, and a little tropical agriculture system with a farm and a human habitat with living quarters. Yeah, that's right, because you have the whole agricultural section as well. Uh, by the way, that rainforest, um, uh, that was uh, designed by Sir Gillian Prance, uh, then director of the New York Botanical Garden. And uh, as far as the, the ocean area is concerned, it was designed by Walter uh, Aidy, uh, a geologist at the Smithsonian Institute. Yeah, and there's a waterfall in there. It's absolutely gorgeous. And if you look at uh, some old footage of some of the biospherians talking about their experience, they will all say it was beautiful. Like, that's the thing that stood out most to mm-hmm. me is just how incredible this environment was. Yeah, I mean, it, you look at these images and it's it's kind of like silent running, except more fabulous like it's more amazing looking than some of the sci-fi visions that came before it it's it's on par with wonka land except the the waterfall (laughs) is not chocolate but water and we'll come back to to wonka in a bit we will um and you know it reminds me a bit too i remember when i was a kid my family would go up to uh 
the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee, which has these, these big. Enclosed- I've been there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, they have the big enclosed uh, gardens. Yeah. Uh, but if, but it's not really enclosed. It's by no means a biosphere. But I remember walking through it and like sort of imagining that I was in a spaceship. It's a little like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is pretty amazing, too. It, it had something like 3,000 documented species of plants and animals across its five biomes. So we are talking about everything from scorpions to microbes to coral reefs to crops and pests. Yeah, I mean, they really tried to represent actual ecosystems here, not just a situation of, all right, let's have some goats to milk. Let's have yeah. some some chickens to eat, you know, or anything like that. It was, let's have actual ecosystems. These need to be, these need to be the world in small. Yeah. And if you have any doubt about the breadth and depth of this project, consider that some of these species were grown in greenhouses, but some of them were trucked in as entire landscapes. And you had swaths of tropical rainforest sampled from Venezuela, savanna from French Guiana, desert from the Baja, marsh from the Everglades, and at the suggestion, I love this, of William S. Burroughs, bush babies were introduced <laughs> to supply companion primates. I did not I did not run across that in my notes that William S. Burroughs actually uh, contributed to this project. Sure, he weighed in and on as well. You, you want his name uh, on the credits list when uh, the scientists start pulling things apart later on. Right, that's going to help. Um, now, Jane Pointer, who is one of the, the biospherians, and we'll talk a little bit more about her later, she said that they called it their Garden of Eden on top of an aircraft carrier. And that's an apt comparison, I think, because the, the, the infrastructure required, the technology required for all of that, uh, for all these, these ecosystems to thrive within this contained environment is pretty extensive. Yeah, because when we're talking about that structure below it, we're talking about 26 air handler units in the basement of the technosphere, as they called it, that had the ability to heat and cool air and create condensate water for biospheres to ocean, rain, and fog atmospheres. Yeah, underneath you had mazes of pipes, vents, water tanks, a huge, a huge empty vats uh, that were used to process human waste. Um, you had, but the, of course, the cooling system because you're having to, you're trying to keep a sealed greenhouse cool in a desert um, and that requires a great deal of energy so it is it's like an aircraft carrier where the infrastructure beneath the uh, this magical sci-fi Eden and uh, you've got electrical power supplied to the biosphere from natural gas energy center which is located outside of biosphere 2 through airtight penetrations so just in case you were wondering how that was happening yeah but still you can you can argue that I guess it's geothermically it's geothermically open so uh so that's allowed. Indeed. Yeah. All right. So now you have an idea of Eden on top of this aircraft carrier. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about life in the biosphere. All right. We're back. And uh, yes, indeed, life in the biosphere. Uh, instantly, when you think about Biosphere 2, you can't help but focus on the human aspect of it. Those eight individuals that actually went in dressed in their kind of Star Trek-looking uniforms, mm-hmm. uh, and gave some wonderful speeches before they did, too, uh, and uh, and then had to live in there, had to work in there, and roll with some of the difficulties that uh, ended up uh, popping up. Yeah, in 1991, they enter for two years and 20 minutes, as mm-hmm. Jane Pointner says, and uh, all eight of them hung out together. We're talking about Jane Pointner, who was the lead scientist, there was Roy Walford, a doctor who studied restricted calorie diets. Mm-hmm. Tabor McCallum, Linda Lee, a botanist. Abigail Ailing, 
a marine biologist, Mark Nelson, who was in charge of the waste recycling systems. Mark Von Tilo, who was in charge of those machines, that technosphere. And then Sally Silverstone, who was the captain of them all. And this was not the first time these individuals met. This was a close-knit group. They were all biospherians. Uh, they were they were all very much uh, in line with the ideas of John Allen, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and and they had been uh, engaged in this uh, in, in work leading up to this. So it's important to note that these these were not just schmoes taken off the street. That while some of them may have engaged in theater in the past, these were not just it wasn't a theater troupe that was thrown into this uh, this uh, Eden on an aircraft carrier. Uh, these were individuals who were very invested in the idea. And had uh, varying backgrounds that uh, befitted someone that was going to live in a biosphere for two years. Yeah, and uh, you know, if this were a theater troupe that were just thrown in there, as the media kind of tried to pretend, yeah. you know, they wouldn't last for more than twenty four hours. And I- I'm not saying anything against theater troupe. I'm I'm one of you guys out there, <laughs> um, one of us. But uh, because we can't but help you but know, think of Big Brother, uh, the TV sh- series, reality sensation. Yeah, uh, when we think about this, because that idea was inspired by Biosphere 2. So we think about individuals thrown into this environment. We think of in, you know, we instantly think about per, inter, interpersonal conflict and, yes. and people who don't know each other having to deal with each other. And I'm not saying that actors have a lot of interpersonal conflict, <laughs> but I'm saying there is a huge psychological element to this and that all those Biospherians had to be ready for this. And they trained for this in various ways over the two years um, that this was being put into place. And some of them, and I believe it was Pointner and uh, perhaps Sally Silverstone, they also did some some closed system trials and, and lived and tried to work in smaller environments to get themselves ready for this. Yeah, and by and large, all of these individuals uh, went on after Biosphere to continue to work in 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 related areas. Um, you know, for instance, uh, Mark Nelson continued to work in. Um, in, in watershed management, environmental engineering, uh, you know, th- they all stayed within their, their wheelhouses. So these were people that were invested long term in the, the disciplines that brought them to buy bi- to the biosphere. Yeah, particularly Jane Pointner, and we can talk mm-hmm. about her later, but she's done a lot of work in the fields of environmental science and space exploration. But so, all right, you get a group of people together. You, they're all working together. They're fine. But, you know, they have to deal with the basics, right? Like food. And this is where things get a bit dicey in the biosphere. All right. Now keep in mind that if you, you want a pizza in the biosphere, you're going to have to make it from scratch. And we're talking about taking the seed, growing the seed, mm-hmm. threshing the wheat, um, feeding your goat, milking the goat. So as Jean Pointner has said, um, in some of her talks, if you want a pizza, it's going to take four months. And I think that gives you an idea of the kind of challenges they were up against in producing their own food and maintaining it. Yeah, and I believe the original estimate was that they would be able to grow 80% of the food they needed within the biosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and even that was uh, was pretty ambitious, considering that they just had uh, about a half an acre to grow all this food, that they're they're not using pesticides, they're they're having to do all the work themselves. But uh, but then but before they launch, uh, the management decided, well, 80 percent isn't going to cut it. We mm-hmm. need to do 100 percent. And to make up for that, we're going to put everybody on a calorie restricted, low fat, nutrient dense diet. Yes. Which is sensible, right? I mean, because right. if food is an issue, well, then we're going to we're going to cut back at, as much as we're we're pushing the envelope 
on our ability to produce it. And a lot of that has to do with the types of food that you can grow at that point, right, right. and manage to grow. And when you're thinking about the food, again, you had mentioned there are no pesticides or herbicides here. Yeah. Okay, so that makes it a little bit more difficult to produce this food. And the reason why there are no pesticides and herbicides is because those chemicals would have affected the air quality. Because although this biosphere's atmosphere is really large, right, it's small enough where those toxins would have built up really quickly and had a, a very negative effect on the health and well-being of everybody inside. Yeah, I mean, those agents are... Um are problematic for the world in large. When you're dealing with the world yeah. in small, uh, even more so. Again, this is why this is such an amazing experiment, yeah. because you are seeing things at a microcosm of, of the macrocosmic world. And so when you're looking at that first winter in 1991 and 19 1992, you have El Nino in effect. And that means that there's an unusual amount of cloud cover in southern Arizona, and that is contributing to unexpectedly low food production. Yeah, less biomass production, less food. And then on top of that, again, no pesticide, uh, no herbicides. But So you're having to actually deal with mites and diseases cutting into your crop production. You don't get that pristine, modern agricultural um, haul out of this. Yeah, and then you've got chickens who are failing to produce sufficient numbers of eggs, and they and the pigs are consuming a lot of the resources. Mm -hmm. So the biospherians decide that they're going to slaughter the farm animals. Now, keep in mind, too, that, um, you know, calling back maybe to an older episode of Rewilding in which we talked about the cascade effect. Once you remove one species, well, it's a domino effect. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine... In this only 3,000 species uh, wide world, that if you take out some of some of these elements, some of these animals, some of these plants that are dying off, then that's going to affect everything else. Yeah, because cycles are key here. You need uh, you need the, the the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, uh, just the basic ebb and flow that is uh, that is central to. Uh, the success of the biosphere needs to be in place in in biosphere too. And when things start falling apart, uh, the center cannot hold. Nicely done, yes. And indeed, the center cannot hold, and food becomes an issue, and there are rumors that maybe the biospherians are smuggling in food. Oh, yes. Especially when Jane Pointner accidentally slices off the tip of her finger, and she has to leave the biosphere, which is another big kerfuffle, right, because someone's right. left it. And, um, and when she does leave it, she returns with a duffel bag, which people say, I bet that's full of bags of Cheetos and yeah. and Ho-Hos and whatever else. Yeah, and I mean, she apparently it was not. She claims it was not. It was yeah. Apparently, she just had put some drawings, some uh, circuit board, uh, something that, to that extent. Um, but yeah, the media was really invested in this. And this wasn't even our modern 24-hour news cycle. No. Uh, I mean, imagine if they did Bios- if Biosphere 2 had taken place during the age of Fox News. I, I, I cannot even imagine the field day they would have had with this because, because everybody was really into this. It was an ambitious project. You had what, you had these well-meaning, uh, you know, kind of hippie, sciencey guys and gals going into this thing. And then you begin to see, uh, shortcomings happening. You begin to see, uh, uh, things like this person leaving and coming in with a mysterious bag. So there's all this room to go, oh, well, what are they doing? They're, they're, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're, the, the system is flawed and, 
And then that uh, Schadenfreude uh, effect kicks in, and you get to uh, sit back and, uh, and and have a hearty laugh at this whole project. Yeah, keep in mind that there were a ton of people that were outside of the structure looking in. Because, mm-hmm. again, we're talking about glass, and they would observe the biospherians, and this was like a big deal. There were a ton of people that were really interested in. Yeah, so basically, it's a human zoo. It's a human right. zoo, and they look in, and what do they see? But the biospherians are beginning to turn orange. Yes. I, and I kid you not, it sounds like yeah, I just like, made that up. Like Oompa Loompas, uh, to return to Willy Wonka. And that has everything to do with their diet, which was largely sweet potatoes. Yeah, 50% of their diet the first year was sweet potatoes. So we're talking about a lot of beta carotene, right? Yeah. And 31% of the fat they consumed was from bananas. And so, yeah, as a, as a consequence, their skin began to turn orange. Can you imagine? <laughs> you know, I'm sure the media was like, and now... They're turning into Oompa Loompas. I, it, it's difficult. It's a difficult to imagine becoming sick of sweet potatoes, but I'm sure it would happen. And it's difficult to imagine turning orange because of eating too many of them. But there you go. Well, and that becomes one of the problems here under the biosphere is that you've got that limited uh, calorie restricted diet. You have decreased, I would say, mental health mm-hmm. as a result because there's some depression setting in. Um, here are some statistics. Men lost 16% of their BMI, their body mass index, in six months. Women lost 11%. Their average systolic blood pressure decreased from 109 to 89, and their diastolic BP decreased from 74 to 58. So these are some pretty big changes happening in their bodies. Yeah, and you know the, the, the sources we were looking at didn't really go into this as much, but we've talked about what happens when an individual is is cut off into a solitary confinement mm-hmm. environment. And this is a, a rather sprawling complex, so it's not, you know, one-to-one with someone being in a, you know, a, a tiny cell. But still, they're engaging with the same place and the same people every day, day in, day over out, over. while rolling with, uh, uh, with, with this calorie-restricted diet, with problems with their food supply, and other issues that we'll get into. Yeah, and Pointer says that they became pretty obsessed with food, or at least she did, and she actually has a book called The Human Experiment, Two Years and 20 Minutes Inside Biosphere 2. And she talks about watching a film, right? Yeah, and, and not, she, she finds herself not even focusing on the plot or the characters. It's about what they're eating, you know, because you, you put yourself in that, those shoes, imagining yourself, you know, feeling this hunger. And and there you're watching, uh, you know, a food fight and a big comedy. That's the way I'm imagining it, that it's a, like classic Hollywood food fight. And they're just like, oh, throw that pie at me. This next description, I think, is is kind of pathetic. She says, sometimes we lined up in the second story windows of the habitat and took turns peering through binoculars at fat people. (laughs) And then she says, for everyone seemed overweight to us then, even the slender people who were spurting ketchup on sausages and shoveling them into their mouths. We were culinary voyeurs. This reminds me of old cartoons where, you know, you'd have the uh, the one character would be starving on the desert island and they look at the other one and they start picturing a big ham hock instead yes. of a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems like that is, in a, in a sense, sort of what's happening. And moreover, they just, they're not as, uh, you know, energy filled as they might be. And so mm-hmm. the tasks that they have to do take a lot longer. Yeah, because there's a lot of work to be done. Because, again, growing your own food, dealing with the animals, maintaining the environment, uh, keeping records, and then just just day to day toil, and you're having to do all of that while rolling with these uh, with this shortage of nourishment. You're right. It's like extreme farming, and uh, also you have to to keep in mind that the carbon dioxide levels were rising, so they were continuously harvesting and sequestering biomass or plants all mm-hmm. over the facility, so they could control that or try to. 
and then they would shovel and scrape carbonate off their homemade natural CO2 scrubber. So keep that in mind with just the regular things that they were having to do just to survive. Right. And one of the things they're having to deal with here is just the unpredictability of the physical environment. I mean, that's the thing about Biosphere 2. And again, keep it in, keep in mind, it was such an ambitious project. Yeah. It's such a large, sprawling project. Again, trying to, to take the ecosystem, larger ecosystems and contain them and manage them within an enclosed environment. Unforeseen consequences are going to take place, things you couldn't possibly think of. So, for instance, they had to deal with a cockroach explosion. There are cockroaches everywhere. <laughs> Crazy ants are invading from the outside. They are breaking through your uh, your 50% space shuttle uh, sealant to uh, to get into that uh, environment and start causing havoc. Yeah, they eventually did um, cross the silicone seal that was eventually penetrated. And so then you have two different biomes uniting with each other, right? Right. Which, you know, would obviously affect the integrity of the experiment. Um, as you said, they had the cockroaches. They, those on night duty had, had the dubious <laughs> task of collecting those cockroaches and, and other varmints and, uh, feeding them to the animals because again, that's a resource. They can't waste that. There's some food for the animals so that they don't have to go out <laughs> and collect for themselves or harvest. Hey guys, I really need that key to the banana room because I think the cockroaches might be getting in there. Well, that's the thing <laughs> that, by the way, we failed to mention that, that the only locked room in the biosphere two was the banana room because yeah. apparently the scent was such a, a siren smell to all everybody on these restricted diets that they had to lock it up to make sure people didn't get yeah, nuts in there. It's too tempting. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, morning glory vines are overrunning all of the other plants, including the precious food crops. Yep, and fish, too many in number, they begin to die off, and that's partly because there's uh, phosphorus trapped in the water system. Yeah, the phosphorus cycles out of whack. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then those fish start to clog the ocean's filtration systems. Another unforeseen uh, circumstance, lack of wind resulted in the trees not developing stress wood to cope with mechanical stress, so they were brittle and prone to collapse. Which actually later on, and we'll talk about this in another episode, Mm -hmm. really helped to inform people about ecosystems and how important, uh, you know, trees and tree canopies are and how they interact with the environment. As I mentioned before, nitrous and phosphorus cycles are disrupted. The nitrous oxide levels uh, actually end up growing high enough to reduce vitamin B12 synthesis to a level that could impair or damage the brain. And meanwhile, a third of the flora and fauna wind up just going extinct in the bio, in biosphere two, including most of the vertebrates and all of the pollinating insects. So again, collapse, more and more collapse, just spiraling out. Right. Now, the death knell perhaps to this whole endeavor, and keep in mind <laughs> the laughing gas, nitrous oxide is also yes. increased, right? Yeah, yeah. You have a loss of oxygen. So, Initially, it was at 21%, which is roughly the same as Earth's, right? Mm-hmm. But it drops to 14%. And Pointner says it was like playing atomic hide-and-seek. They could not figure out how they were losing it. They lost seven tons of oxygen. And it turns out that that oxygen was reacting with a concrete structure. So that was sort of siphoning it off and leading to gradually and continuously lower levels, so much so that the biospherians were getting really groggy. They had sleep apnea. They couldn't complete sentences. And so finally, um, they said, we, we need some outside help for this, which caused quite a fracture. Yeah, because ultimately you reach the point where, hey, to keep going, we need outside air. We need, we need oxygen 
pumped into Biosphere 2. Otherwise, I mean, we've got to, we got to crack, we got to crack a window. And essentially that's what they're doing. They're kind of reaching the point where you're saying, let's go ahead and crack the window. Um, by letting, by letting in a shipped in oxygen. It was brought in in the form of liquid oxygen. And this is one of those things that happens during the course of their two years that really ratchets up this idea of idealism versus science, right? right. So, so essentially you have two groups that disagree on how to manage things. And you can understand how this fracture just causes more and more squabbling, right? Because again, everyone's hungry, everyone's sluggish, everyone's been been stuck in there uh, this long. And meanwhile, there are also there are also outside uh, stress issues to consider because originally this whole thing was budgeted at thirty million, and it had already cost or reported two hundred million. Yeah. So, uh, so th- there was a, a financial uh, aspect to this as well. Right. So it's not just the eight of them making these decisions autonomously. Autonomously, I want to add, you know, you have the management outside. You've got John Allen mm-hmm. and others who are trying to control this. Yeah. So whose money and vision are ultimately at stake in this uh, in, in this endeavor. Right. And this kind of adds to those two different factions or those differences on how things should be managed. So just consider this for the last 14 months of the mission, the eight crew members would, you know, the, the two different groups would not make eye contact or speak to each other unless absolute necessary. I, now I, I do that if like a meeting goes more than 20 minutes here at work. So I can't really blame them. But imagine for two years, yes. you know, <laughs> and imagine this too. That's like losing half of your social sphere. Yeah. Right. So think about half of all your friends just evaporating. Now think about you being in that biosphere with Four people you like and four people or, or three people you like and four people you hate. Yeah. And like a deep personal hatred, the kind you can only have for someone after you've you've worked really closely with them and, and you know, this and shared vision with them and then had a big falling out and were unable to escape their presence. Yeah. Awkward yeah. every single day. So apparently one of the crew set up funding for psychological monitoring and counseling ahead of time. But this experiment was rejected by management. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but some of that is tied to the idea that this wasn't the most transparent of projects. That being said, they stuck it out, and uh, the the eight crew members all emerged alive through the airlock in September of 1993, though in two separate groups of four, (laughs) uh, not speaking to each other. Everybody was grumpy. Everybody was uh, probably ready to uh, hit the, the nearest buffet, but uh, but they, they, they did. They stuck it out. And they made it to the end of the experiment. And that's something I, I feel like to keep in mind through all this, despite all the, the flaws, which we'll get into. I mean, an experiment in, in its essence is not a thing where you set out to necessarily reach that success point. It's about to and you learn from the failures of the experiment as well. You learn from the. The, uh, the unforeseen consequences of the experiment. And this was a sprawling experiment. Yeah. And Pointer talks about this too in her TED talk. Like this was unchartered territory. Mm-hmm. No one had ever done this before. Of course there would be failure. Um, so we'll talk more in the n- next episode about some of the stuff that actually spiraled out of it that was really advantageous. Um, but I think for now it's probably worth mentioning that after this this uh, phase one of the experiment closed out, it was largely ridiculed Yes, as this kind of, I don't know, performance art, this quasi-science. Yeah, I mean, there were so many moving parts to this, so many people involved in it. Um, 
there there are plenty of areas to pick away at this at the structure of the idea mm-hmm. because we mentioned the CO2 scrubber which is a con- controversial uh, issue that was kind of supposedly sort of secretly installed yeah. which uh which you know there's a there's a, a an x on the checklist there then there's the oxygen having to be brought in there's that bag that probably had twinkies in it that came in um there's a there's a, a you know criticisms about the the scientific uh, pedigree of the individuals that were placed in there mm-hmm. criticisms about the oversight uh criticisms about the record keeping uh, and then you start dipping into the history of the synergist as well yeah. and people start saying well this sounds a lot like a cult so you basically have like theater troopy you know environmental cult members in star trek uniforms going into this thing uh how can we take any of it seriously well, especially when you consider that the founder, John Allen, his pen name was Johnny Dolphin. Johnny yeah. Dolphin. That really helps there. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it instantly makes me think of, of in- dolphins and space and John C. Lilly. And I mean, we, yeah, we touched a little bit about like, Allen as just a, a character, very much a, a charismatic leader of a movement with lots of ideas. Uh, and if you if you were to say, "Hey, he kind of sounds like a cult leader," you know, maybe you wouldn't be that far off the off the the track. You know? Well, you and I were discussing this earlier. It's pro- if it was is a cult, it's probably the most productive cult in the world and you got to look at this thing and say, "Wow, the fact that they were able to come up with this and energize and mobilize enough people to do this, to yeah. pull it off to some degree is pretty amazing." Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, uh the energy of a cult tends to to go astray. But in this case, the, the synergist really got a lot of things done even before, uh, Biosphere 2. And granted, they, uh, they benefited from some terrific funding as well. Right. But, uh, but yeah, they, uh, maybe the, 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 uh, the thing here is that if you're, if you're gonna do a big project like this, really a mega project, uh, that, that kind of skips ahead of some of the phases, you know, it's not like they didn't build a mom and pop biosphere. They built an, an epic biosphere. Uh, maybe you need the energy and and guidance of a cult-like structure <laughs> and a cult-like energy to reach that point. So maybe there should be like a NASA cult formed to to I mean, create the momentum. Yeah, I mean maybe. I mean, uh, uh, certainly I could see where it's it's two sides of the same coin. It's like, how do you want to get to to that point? Do you want to go with something that's rigorously scientific, but also? Um, you know, uh, it, it adheres to the uh, the limitations of politics. Well, or do you go with like a blank check uh, funded cult? I don't know. I think that's what's so exciting and frustrating about this project is because you could see it had legs. You could see where it might have if if it had oversight, if it had had transparency. Yes. And um and the management was a bit different, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. You could see how this thing could have created um some very intentional studies, long-term studies. That being said, there was still plenty of accidental science that came from this, and we'll talk about this in the next episode. Indeed, if you could have possibly combined the sensibility of the synergist movement with uh, a more rigorous structure, a little more NASA in there, uh, you know, along with the the funding, who knows what we could have we could have uh, achieved with this? But as again, as we'll discuss in the next episode, we really did get a lot out of Biosphere Two. Uh, even though at the time it was very much uh, uh, discussed as a failure, at the time uh, it, it kind of became the laughing stock in the media towards the end. Um, despite all of that, 
uh, there was there's a lot of good that came out of this. Indeed. And if you guys are interested in looking at some um, some documentaries on this, I want to recommend New York Times. They have a um, documentary that's like 12 minute yeah, long documentary. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's called Biosphere 2, an American Space Odyssey. And then there is a documentary about the actual building of Biosphere 2 called Will Apples Grow on Mars? <laughs> yeah, I, I think at, at the end of the day, I mean, Biosphere 2 is something that will be in the history books long term. There yeah. will come a time when yeah. this is very much at least a bullet point, a very strong bullet point in uh, the history of humanity as we uh, explored more about how our world works and attempted to take it beyond Biosphere 1. I agree. I think it is only now beginning to get its due. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, hey, in the meantime, while you're waiting for Episode 2 on this topic, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of the episodes we've ever done. Uh, you'll find blog posts, videos, and you'll also find um, a gallery of Biosphere 2 images. Uh, you'll probably find that linked on the front page, but also the landing page for this particular episode will include that link. And if you have some thoughts on this, on uh, biospheres or living in closed systems, maybe you have submitted yourself to one, let us know. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 